Welcome, everyone. Obviously, uh, it's a Wednesday night, and I'm in my office and not in the sanctuary. That must mean that things are off. I'm sure you can guess why. Uh, we're meeting digitally uh, this week instead of in person and online. Uh, the reason is out of an abundance of caution. I think everything's okay, but just to uh, play it safe, in case things aren't okay, uh, we, we're going to go online today. Uh, we will meet this Sunday morning. Uh, as we normally do. We're actually going to add Sunday school, so uh, be sure to join us for that. So this Sunday morning, Sunday School 845, worship at 10. Um, hope to see you all there, uh, and, and then after that we should be back on our regular schedule. With that said, what I want to do is we were originally going to start looking at uh, the book of Genesis. Remember that we spent eight or nine months, uh, the first eight or nine months of last year, going through Genesis 1 through 11. Uh, we stopped right after the Tower of Babel, which is about halfway through chapter 11. And uh, then we took a break. Uh, we talked about the 12 disciples and the book of Jude. Uh, and, and we wanted to begin this year going back to it. And, and we will. But since things are, are, are a bit thrown off by uh, this, this adjustment, it's only the second time we've had to do this, um, I thought we would uh, go back actually on, on an old Bible study. Uh, so, so this material, most of it isn't new. I'm sure some of it will be, but uh, we've looked at it before. Uh, but I still think it's worth exploring. So if you have your Bibles, open them to Psalm 102, Psalm 102. I just want to read three verses. We're, we're not going to be able to um, go in any detail about the psalm or the passage we'll look, look at. What I want to do is talk about... Um, one of the key attributes of God, at least uh, in my theology, what I think is a often overlooked yet central uh, attribute of God, and that is that God is immutable. That is to say that God doesn't change. So I want us to talk about that today, and hopefully we'll get out a little early. I say that not knowing if, if we will or not, um, but uh, it's, it's, it's not as much fun talking to a camera as it is um, to, to people here. So we, we'll probably get out a little early. Psalm 102, uh, verses 25 to 27. Let's go ahead and read it. It says, um, Of old uh, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe, and they will pass away. But you are the same, and your ears have no end. Um, every once in a while, uh, our family uh, will get a visit from um, some witnesses. Uh, this has happened at everywhere we lived at and even while we were visiting family one time. Now, I'm not talking about the Mormons. I'm actually talking about, in this context, the Jehovah Witnesses. Uh, similar in, in, in sense of uh, where they come from, their history, and all part of the, sort of part of the burned-out district. Um, but their theology is very different. And, and Jehovah Witness theology, one of the main challenges of them is they deny the deity of Jesus. They believe that Jesus was the first being created, but he's still a created being. Uh, so they have a lesser Jesus in their theology. Well, over the years, as, as they come by for a visit, I try to engage them as much as I can. Rarely have a pleasant conversation. I'll just be honest with you. Um, um, Latter-day Saints, they usually have a wonderful conversation with, though we, 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 we agree to disagree and move forward. They don't come by the house anymore, although they're in our, in, they're in our neighborhood all the time. Uh, but the JWs uh, is rarely a, a pleasant conversation. Uh, they're easily offended, it seems like. 
But one of the main arguments I, I, I want to raise to them is this issue of the immutability of God. Let me, let me see if I can lay it out for you. Do you believe God is Father? Well, we would, of course, would, would say yes. Yeah. And they would say yes, God is Father. Okay. Do you believe that God is eternally Father? That is to say that God has always been Father. He will always be Father. Now and forever. Amen. Or a woman. Right? Um, okay, so if God is Father, God is eternally Father. Then by definition, um, doesn't that mean that Jesus has always been around? Look, if in order to be a father, and you've always been a father, and thus you're immutably a father, you're a father and that doesn't change, then by definition, in order to be a father, don't you have to have a son? And the Bible gives the, the, a name to the son of the father, and his name is Jesus. Now, that's an old argument that actually uh, Athanasius used in, in the 4th century when dealing with the Arian heresy, uh, which is basically what Jehovah's Witnesses are, are today. The reason I bring that up is, is because although we rarely talk about the fact that God doesn't change, and I bet we don't think about it much, it is a very practical argument of Scripture. And it matters a lot, particularly in the context we find ourselves with COVID and changing of administrations and increased division and chaos. We really need to know that with everything is uncertain, God is certain. So let's, let's see if we can uh, make a biblical case for it. Let's start with two basic theological foundational points in order to, to, to see this. The first is God is perfect. God is perfect. This is made clear in Matthew 5, chapter 5, verse 48. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. No one's going to debate that, right? God is perfect. I think we all agree, agree on it. I don't need to defend it beyond a single verse from Jesus. But when you think about it, perfection is immutable. Perfection isn't subject to uh, forward or backward. So if you, you can become more perfect or you become less perfect. But if you are eternally perfect, you are immutably perfect. You are perfect forever and ever. So if God changes, then he is either growing towards perfection or farther away from it. And of course, if God isn't perfect or he's becoming perfect or he's progressing towards it, as uh, process theology might argue or the emergent church might argue, then the problem is, is that... Um, that challenges him as lawgiver. Because how can he define what is right and wrong when he has not discovered all that is right and uh, wrong? Well, so, so, so we want to begin there, that, that God is perfect. The second is that God is eternal. Sort of what I brought up with the Jehovah Witnesses in, in my illustration. So we get that God is perfect, but, but there's also the point that God is eternal. So God has always been perfect. He always has been. He always is. He always will be. So, so that means he's not limited, he's, he's, he, he, but rather he's outside of time. He always has and always will be the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning, the end, so on and so forth. So if God is eternal, then he is immutably eternal. And that means his attributes are eternal with him. It isn't that God is now loved, but that God is 
always been love, and God will always be love. It isn't that God is now sovereign in, in that he had to engage in some battle with the gods. Right? That's what paganism teaches. Brother, God has always been sovereign, and God always will be sovereign. So his eternality um, is applied to each of his attributes. And, and the bedrock are those of those is that God is immutable. So, so the, the, there's your foundation. God is perfect. God is eternal. Therefore, God is immutable. What does the Bible say about this, right? Maybe you can make a theological argument, but what about a biblical argument? Well, in Numbers chapter 23, verse 9, it makes it very clear. God is not man that he should lie, right? That's pretty straightforward. Or son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, will he not do it? Has he spoken, will he not fulfill it? Very clear there, isn't it? Is God human like us? Well, no. But what do humans do? We lie and we change our mind. Um, isn't this what, what we do all the time? I, I tease my, my wife all the time. I, I like to argue that she has a buyer bulimia. That is, if she buys something, she has to then, you know, take it back. Um, and, uh, and the reason is because she changed her mind. It's not the right size. Doesn't match this. You know, I found something better, found a better price, you know, whatever whatever it might be. We're constantly changing our minds. One of the frustrations of relationships, isn't it? One of the frustrations of the last year. I mean, the reason why we're meeting online only is because we're constantly having to change. God's point in Numbers chapter 23 is, I'm not like that. I don't change my mind. I don't change my being. I'm not evolving. I'm not becoming anything. I am. Then we read, read Psalm 102. And I want you to notice what the psalmist does here, why this passage is so important. What the psalmist does, he's looking around, he's saying, look, everything around me is changing. And, and some of it, you, you may not be able to see the, the, the erosion of the mountains and, the, and, and, and all this sort of stuff. He said, look, look, you can look at creation. You can look at humankind. You can look at everything. And, and, and it's characterized by change. Chances are, in this state a year ago, you, you were not the same person you are now, hopefully for the better. But, but, but you're not the same. Your, 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 your family situation is not the same. Your home life situation is not the same. So, you know, you're, nothing is the same. You look back over your life, and it's, it's one adjustment after another. But what does the psalmist say? Look, everything around me may change, but I know one thing that will never change. And that is, of course, God. They, that is the heavens and the earth, they will perish. You remain the same. Um, Malachi chapter 3 says then I will draw near to you for judgment I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers against the adulterers against those who swear falsely against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages the widow and the fatherless against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me says the Lord of hosts here it is for I the Lord do not change very clear Therefore you, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Now, I want you to notice what it is that um, Malachi the prophet is saying here. He's saying, look, I respond to wickedness with judgment. I respond to repentance with grace. And what is at the bedrock of that? God doesn't change. If God responded to wickedness with grace and repentance with judgment, suddenly everything has changed. 
Right? But the Bible promises he'll keep his covenant with Israel. He will forgive those who, who, who ask for it. He will condemn and judge those who are content in their wickedness. Same thing in Romans chapter 11. Um, we, we, we spent some time on this. Uh, I think we've gone through Romans on Wednesday night. I, I don't remember. I don't think it's recorded. Uh, but we certainly went through them in our study of the New Testament. Um, and, and Romans 11 is probably the most difficult chapter of Romans. But it concludes with a bit of a doxology. Paul writes, For the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. Oh, the depths of riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, so on and so forth. But that phrase, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. They do not change. They, not, they are not subject to, to an update. There's no fine print to them. What about the writer of Hebrews, chapter 13, verse 8? Very clearly says, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And what, what great certainty that, that is, right? But James chapter 1, verse 17, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. God never changes. And there are other passages we could look at, but, but I, I think that's a pretty good biblical and theological foundation. God is perfect, and that perfect is not subject to change. God is eternal. And that eternality isn't subject to change. And then Scripture over and over again <coughs> excuse me, wants us to see that God doesn't change. And when God reveals that to the writers of Scripture, he does so as a means of comforting them. Now, that may seem obvious to us, but there are those who reject this doctrine. And they reject it, they claim, on biblical grounds. Uh, I don't want to spend forever on this because... Uh, um, I really want to um, um, let y'all out early, um, but um, I want to look at some objections to the the uh, doctrine of divine immutability. Uh, in more recent years, there's been a movement called open theism. It's uh, you can add to this process theology and some others, but the, but the, those points don't really matter. There are those who who want to argue God does change. Let me see if I can prove it to you biblically. Now, I disagree with with these interpretations. But let me see if I can um, share with you some of the passages that they would point to. One would be Genesis chapter 6, verse 6. Remember the story, right? Uh, the, the, the Nephilim and, and, you know, the sons of God mixed with the daughters. Remember what God says? It says that God regretted making mankind. Why is that term regret, isn't it? I think the King James says repent. I, I know when these later passages will. So you look at that and you think, did God change his mind about what he did? If God can change his mind, not only does that contradict numbers, that God is not a man, son of man, so he doesn't change his mind, but the implications of that are quite significant. Or consider 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 35. It says, And Samuel did not see Saul again to the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. There it is again. Same sort of thing that connects us to the Watcher story of Genesis 6. So does God look at the situation? He's saying, man... I made a mistake. Shouldn't have done that. Hmm. Or consider the story of Jonah. You know the story of Jonah, right? He gets, you know, he, he trying to run from God, go the opposite direction of Nineveh. God swallows him with fish, takes him back to Nineveh. He preaches one sentence, you know, one verse in, in the Bible, probably more than that. You know, the whole city repents. And Jonah goes up to, to the mountain to, to watch God destroy the city. God doesn't destroy the city. In fact, he shows grace to them. Jonah throws a fit because apparently he's a teenage boy. 
And and in there it says, just as Jonah 3.10, when God saw what they did, how they um, turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now, I do know the King James word there in Jonah 3.10 is the word repents. And so the implication of the King James, this is one of the weaker parts of the King James. King James is fine, but this is one of those verses that's not helpful at all in the King James Version. It says God repented. Now, now, in 16th century or 17th century, you could get away with that. In the 20th and 21st century, the word repent exclusively has a moral implication, meaning to it, right? If I repent, that means I'm turning away from evil towards the good. Right? Repentance is the bedrock of receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ. So when you see that God repented, or in the ESV, God relented, the implication is that God changed his mind. He was going to destroy the city, and then he, he changed his mind. He's not. But I want us to look at these examples, particularly the Jonah example. And we'll go back to the story of Saul as well. But consider what the story of Jonah is. The story of Jonah is you have a, a reluctant prophet who preaches grace and is received by evil people. Okay? Now, now let's just think. What do you expect, if you know nothing else of the Jonah story, what would you expect God to do upon a people repenting? Well, you read the whole Bible, and you expect God to show grace. What does God do in the story? Shows grace. Now, if I'd ask you, what do you think God's going to do when someone or a nation repents, and you say he's going to be gracious, and I say to you, no, this time God burned the city to the ground. You'd say, wait, that is inconsistent with the nature of God. It's not that you got a multiple choice question wrong, but it's a question of God's nature. God's nature is gracious to, to, to the repentant and righteous and holy and wrathful towards the wicked. Now, had the people not repented, what would we have expected to happen? Well, God to condemn, God to judge and allow his wrath to smite them. So what happens in the story is consistent with the rest of, uh, rest of the Bible. But what the language does is it's an anthropomorphism. That is, it's a word used to help us understand God. So, for example, the hand of God. Does God have a hand? Does he have five fingers, you know, phalanges? Does he have that with ligaments? There? Well, no. But we understand what's meant by the hand of God, right? So, so to say God relented doesn't mean God changed his mind. This is to say that the punishment that was about to fall upon them was pulled back because in his nature, this is what God does to repentant sinners. And go back to that example of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 15, Samuel grieved over Saul and God uh, uh, regretted making uh, Saul king. But then six verses before that, this is what's striking those who use 1 Samuel uh, 15, 35. Uh, they, they skip over verse 29. It says, The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. So in this one chapter, you have God doesn't have regret, but the Lord regretted over making Saul king. You see here that, that the tension is, per, is, is on purpose. We're to see here, it's not that God changes his mind, but in, in, in hyperlinking back to numbers, he's saying, look, God isn't like a man in that he's, he's, he's wishy-washy. 
right? He's, he's uncertain about his decisions. But in order for us to understand the depth of Saul uh, uh, being abandoned by God, it uses language that, that God regretted making him uh, king. The same thing is said in Genesis 6, that God regretted uh, making mankind. Now, um, um, with that said, I want us to finish out by looking at a number of areas of application. Maybe, maybe you, 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 you've hung around as long as you can thinking, Preacher, that's great in seminary, but what does that have to do with me? And I want to argue that it has everything to do with you. It has everything to do with me. The doctrine of divine immutability is a bedrock of our faith. Let me give you a few reasons why. First of all, it means that God's Word is immutable. Many read the Bible and think, well, that was good for them. But we're advanced now. Things have changed. Can we really take advice from people who were ignorant of germs and didn't have the word light bulb in their vocabulary, right? Can, can, can we really take advice from them? Well, this is the problem with liberalism. Liberalism, um, in terms of their arguments, are firmly rooted in... Um, chronological snobbery, to borrow a C.S. Lewis term. But if you believe in Darwinism, you believe that tomorrow will be better than today. At least a million tomorrows from today. And because we're progressing towards uh, uh, the ubermensch, we're progressing towards the ideal um, being, right? Um, and so humans have evolved from our you know, primate ancestors, and whatever comes after us will be more intelligent, uh, more ethical, more utopian, right? And so the way a progressive see history is, is you are now free to look back with judgments. We've been seeing this with the statues falling, haven't we? Well, yeah, that guy might have, and my favorite, I, I think I used this a few weeks ago, one was uh, on the uh, side of a Winston Churchill statue in England uh, was, was spray-painted fascist. And, and the thinking is, is that because... He died a hundred years ago. I obviously didn't die a hundred years ago. Um, then he must have been a racist. But the problem with Winston Churchill saying that is, he was the lone voice in all of England saying, "You've got to fight the fascists, and I'm going to lead you to fight the fascists." I mean, if there was anyone who fought fascists, it was Winston Churchill, right? But that's the way we view history. Sure, Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves. He didn't go far enough. Therefore, he's a racist. After all, he's a straight white male, right? Originally from the South in, in, in Kentucky. All right, this is how we view history. Everyone that came before us is flawed, but I'm better than they. What we fail to do is to think, yeah, but 20 years from now, how are you going to be canceled by this self-righteous progressive mob? Because you're going to be, right? Because you're not enough of whatever is, is coming next. But when we read the Bible, we view it differently. We say that if all truth is God's truth, and God has revealed himself to us, culture may change, language may change, history may change, society may evolve, but the standards of God and the word of God remains the same. The promises of scripture remain true, binding, and assured. This means that when God says he'll never leave us for or forsake us, we can say, God will never leave you or forsake you. And it isn't bound by circumstances. 
This is why right now, instead of Christians living in fear because of COVID, because of politics, or because of the direction of the culture, what if we pause and said, look, here's the word of God written to a people living in a time worse than ours, let's be honest, and this was sufficient for them, and God doesn't change, his word doesn't change, therefore it's sufficient for us. What if we learn to read the Bible as that? We read that Christ will return and that Christ will right every wrong. We read that that there is uh, uh, enough room under the umbrella of, of grace for every sinner, beginning with you and me. But that hasn't changed. And the second you go into the Bible and say, well, this needs an update. They were bigots. They didn't understand anything. What we're doing is now we subjectively become the Bible. So yeah, maybe you don't like this part or that part. But it's striking, isn't it, that we don't want a God of judgment, but we still want that God of love. But the truth is, in diminishing the God of holiness, we end up diminishing the God of love. I mean, look how we've diminished love in our society. It's exclusively um, um, infatuation and lust and stuff like that. It's erotic, but it isn't agape, right? Uh, because we've, we've diminished uh, the immutability of, of God's Word. Not only that, but we see that God's Word is immutable, but theology proper is immutable. When theologians talk about the doctrine of God, they'll use the term theology proper. I don't know why, they just do. So when I say theology proper is immutable, what I'm saying is that every attribute of God is immutable. That is to say that God's wrath, God's love, God's sovereignty, God's jealousy, God's um, grace, God's uh, providential uh, providence, every, every aspect of God is not subject to change. That means the God at creation will be the God at consummation. The God of the cross will be the God of the church. Right? Isn't this good news? Think about it. If, if God changed his mind or God's nature changed, could you say with certainty, God loves me? You can't. Or that God is in control of the world? You can't. But if we can say as a bedrock doctrine, God is not subject to change, can we not add to that, therefore, God is holy and will forever be holy. God is love and will forever be love. God is gracious and will forever be gracious. He is in control and will always be in control. He is Lord and will always be Lord. Can we not say that as well? So all the doctrines of God, even the ones that we don't understand or maybe we don't even like, if, if, if we're honest with ourselves, are not subject to change or an update. So if the God you worship isn't the God of Scripture, you're not worshiping the real God. And chances are the God you're worshiping looks a whole lot like you, just with superpowers. And that's not the real God. We don't want a God who is fickle and changing. The third reason why this matters is because salvation is immutable. Isn't this what we saw in the example of Malachi and Jonah? God keeps his word. If he declares that they are redeemed, they are and will forever be redeemed. So let's start with redemption itself. God shows grace to the repentant, wrath to the evil ones. Right? It's, it's, it's that simple. If you want God's grace... Come to him before the cross in repentance. 
If you want God's wrath, continue marching down your way without regard to his will. It's that simple. And that is not subject to change. There is no yeah, but. Yeah, but God, I, I know, I know I, I didn't really um, repent. But you got to admit, I wasn't as bad as the next guy. You gotta admit I was I was okay. You gotta admit I, I I had a rough upbringing. No, 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 no. It's very simple. The salvation call is irrevocable and immutable. Repent and believe the gospel, and God's grace will be poured out upon you. But it isn't just the receiving of salvation we're talking about here. It's the um, preservation of salvation we're talking about here. Those whom God saves, He keeps. So divine immutability assures us that salvation is eternal and non-negotiable. Because when God makes a promise, you are redeemed. That is an eternal promise, not subject to fine print. George Whitfield was um, believed that, that you could lose your salvation. George Whitfield was a very influential uh, preacher of the first great awakening in America. In fact, I would argue uh, Whitfield, Edwards, and Wesley probably shaped America about as much as anyone, certainly theologically, spiritually, America became a very religious nation, largely because of these these three men and their work in the uh, First Great Awakening. You can add to that the Second Great Awakening, but there's some differences between the two. Anyways, he was writing to his good friend John Wesley. John Wesley, of course, founded Wesleyanism, or uh, more commonly known as Methodism. Uh, John and Charles Wesley were brothers. Charles were, was better known as a hymn writer, um, whereas John was more of a preacher and theologian. Uh, but the t- two men disagreed on the issue of um, eternal salvation. Uh, so Whitfield wrote this, Without the belief of and the immutability of the free love of God, I cannot see how it is possible that any should have a comfortable assurance of eternal salvation. What could it signify to a man whose conscience is thoroughly awakened and who is warned in good earnest to seek deliverance from the wrath to come, that he should be assured that all of his past sins are forgiven and that he is now a child of God, if, notwithstanding this, he may hereafter become a child of the devil and be cast into hell at last. You see, his question is, 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 is an assurance part of the good news of the gospel? My child, you are redeemed. Much in the same way we would say that, that when, when, when this child becomes my son or daughter, whether biologically or through adoption, what am I declaring? You will forever and always be my son and daughter. Despite the mistakes you made. Despite if, if you end up you know, dis- making a disappointing decisions. You will always be my, fa- my son or daughter. Well, we are then adopted into the family of God as joint heirs of Jesus. It isn't a revocable adoption. God keeps us. Charles Spurgeon wrote, Others hold the unnatural, cruel, and barbarous idea that a man may be God's child and that God may disown him because he does not behave himself. The idea is revolting even to human sensibility. If our children sin, they are still our children, though chastened and punished. Yet never do they cease to be numbered among our family. There are many of God's children who have gone astray from him and been chastened for it. But it were 
But if it were an idea to barbarous to suppose that God would disown his child for any sin he commits, he keeps fast his covenant. He loves them, sinners though they may be. He keeps them from running riotously into sin. But when sometimes they go astray, as the best of them will, still his loving heed towards them is unchangeably the same. Notice the connection between God's divine nature that doesn't change and his application of salvation. Look, I think MacArthur is right when he says, if you can lose your salvation, you will lose your salvation. But the good news is, we are kept by God because God's promises are irrevocable. Isn't that good news? So dear Christian, I I beg of you to repent yet again, not for salvation, but because of salvation. How important is that? Fourthly, and I believe this is last, the gospel is immutable. The gospel is immutable. Um, One of the striking things we see in Acts is the gospel goes everywhere. It goes to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, all the way to Rome, right? And yet the message that the disciples preach doesn't change. You ever notice that? If they're preaching to Jews, they preach salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. They're preaching to Samaritans. What are they preaching? Salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of Christ's finished work upon the cross and resurrection. They're preaching to Gentiles. What's, what's the message they're preaching? Salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of the finished work of Christ upon the cross and the empty tomb. Same message. If you're living in medieval times, what is the message the people there need to hear? Salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of the finished work of Christ upon the cross and the empty tomb. You're preaching to secular progressive humanists in Berkeley, California, the 21st century. Rioters in D.C., mobs in Portland, Oregon, or some southern belle and her family in Georgia. Third world countries who are starving to death. Drug lords. What's the message you're going to preach? Salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, on account of the finished work of Christ upon the cross in the empty tomb. Because if God doesn't change, God's word doesn't change, salvation doesn't change, the gospel doesn't change. Therefore, we don't need to be creative with it. Too many of us are trying to do precisely that. Make emotional pulls to pull people in. Try to prove that Christianity can be cool too. What is sufficient is the promise of God. Repent and believe the gospel, and you will be saved. The gospel transcends culture, history, time, language, everything, because the gospel isn't subject for an update. Again, Charles Spurgeon, as I neared the chapel, I perceived that someone was in the pulpit preaching. And what should the preacher be but my dear and uh, venerable grandfather? One of my favorite stories in church history. He saw me as I came in at the front door and made my way up the aisle. And once he said, here comes my grandson. He may preach the gospel better than me, but he can't preach a better gospel. I love that. I love it. This guy may be able to preach the gospel better, but he can't preach a better gospel. Isn't that true?
Isn't that true? Well, that is the doctrine of divine immutability. And it's good news. I believe that if God doesn't change, that we have what the world is looking for, and that is assurance. If you trust in politics, you trust in the state, you know what's going to happen every two years? Change. The good guys win. The bad guys win. No one wins. It's up in the air. Gridlock. So-and-so said this to so-and-so. Now my feelings are hurt. We need to round up the posse to go see to it this never happens again. Your life is going to be an influx of change and anxiety and worry. You trust in your relationships? Guess what's going to change? Trust in your career, the economy? Guess what's going to change? Where there is a rock, the rock of immutability, God does not change. If God doesn't change, grace doesn't change. God's word doesn't change. And our hope remains the same. Back in the 20th century, Karl Barth was in Washington, D.C., uh, doing sort of a Q&A. Now, Karl Barth is considered the greatest theologian of the 20th century. I would agree with that. I'm not a big Karl Barth fan. I don't think he's the, uh, um, the, the devil in the closet some, uh, some uh, conservative evangelicals make him out to be, but he had his theological hang-ups, admittedly. Um, but he was a very influential theologian at the time, very popular, a lot of people came. One of the people at this Q&A was a man by the name of Carl F.H. Henry. Carl F.H. Henry was influential to a lot of conservative um, uh, theologians today. In fact, I would say uh, modern evangelicalism has two giants. One is Billy Graham. The other is Carl F.H. Henry. Two, two very influential people. Well, Carl F.H. Henry um, um, asked early on a, a question about the historicity of the resurrection. Carl Barth saw who it was asking the question. The two knew each other. And he said, Carl F. H. Hendry, aren't you the uh, editor of Christianity Today? Yeah, yeah, that's me. He said, huh, more like Christianity Yesterday. By which Carl F. H. Hendry responded, yes, Christianity Yesterday, today, and forever. That's good news. So stop worrying about what's happening on your television. Stop being glued to your phone and allowing it to control your emotions and your state of mind and your spiritual health. Rather be rooted and grounded in the good news. God doesn't change. That's where my hope is. Hope to you guys here Sunday morning, 845 Sunday School, 10 a.m., uh, for worship. We will be meeting here. I think everything's going to be okay. We're just playing it safe today by staying online. And I hope you guys have a good rest of the week um, and uh, hope to see you Sunday. Have a good one.